Hi, and welcome to episode 26 of Her Story. This is your host, Cassidy Reed. And today on the show, I have guest Jenny Billfield. Jenny is the current president and CEO of Washington Performing Arts. And in this episode, we have an awesome conversation about her life, her career, some of the gender equity experiences she has had in her own life, and some of the racial and gender equity issues that occur in performing arts organizations and we also talk a little bit about some advice that she may have for those of you who are just starting out and for her younger self so please let us know what you think of this episode make sure you share it with your friends and let us know if you'd like to be a guest we'd love to have you on the show so i will see you all next monday I'm Jenny Belfield. I'm the president and CEO of Washington Performing Arts based in Washington, D.C., and I'm a native New Yorker, um, but I've been in Washington for seven and a half years. I'm so excited to have you on and to talk about your life and your career and all these things because you've done some really, really interesting projects with the various positions you've had, so I'm really excited to dive into that. Um, but first, I'd like to talk a little bit about your early experiences. So what got you into music in the first place? Well, you know, it, it, it's funny, music has always been from my earliest memories, it's been not just part of my life, but it's been central to my life. I started playing the piano when I was three years old and I don't come from a musical or artistic family, but my mother was a real music lover. And so we always had music on. And in fact, every night when I went to sleep, this was in the era of LPs, she would put on um, a stack of three LPs. And the first would be Leonard Bernstein directing Peter and the Wolf. The second would, re would revolve between Louis Armstrong and Elaine May and Mike Nichols and Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. Um, and then the third one was always the Rite of Spring. So I went, I grew up basically with this kind of indoctrination into a really wide variety of music and my, the kind of backdrop for my life was sort of the music that I that I heard my mother had really eclectic taste and she made me her little sort of concert companion. So we went to everything when I was a kid. We went to restaurants to hear music. We went to church basements and community centers and Lincoln Center and we went to art exhibits. So she really took my interest and made it possible for me to be exposed to as much as I was interested in. And I just, I ate it all up. That's awesome. And that's such a wide variety of things to play for you every night. Yeah, you know, it, it really, it, it's interesting because that early exposure, you know, when you think about how malleable a child's brain is and how they say that, you know, the first six years are really critical to reinforce, to, to kind of build the, the capacity for learning and, and the, the platform for what will grow from there. Um, I really feel as though what my mother and father, but mostly my mother did, was kind of kindles something that was already there and and made it an even bigger part of my life or enabled me to discover how it would be a bigger part of my life. She found me teachers. First teacher was terrible, you know, one of those uh, horrible teachers who sort of, you know, hits the back of your hand when you make a mistake. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, really, I, I 
I wanted to noodle around. I wanted to compose more than I wanted to practice or learn music. So um, I started noodling around, writing my own music. And then she found me this great teacher who was a um, more of a, of a jazz sort of lounge pianist. He played in various hotels and bands and, you know, wedding bands and stuff. And I, I learned actually to improvise with a melody over chord changes. So I learned how to basically play a fabulous array of cocktail style music. Yeah. And, and that, that became actually a really, it, it was sort of a, a lovely thing to do. I was probably about nine years old when I started studying with him. And it was at a time when my, my sister and brother-in-law lost their first child to an, an illness. And I found that playing these sort of cocktail sounds for my mother who was grieving and my father who was grieving made kind of a, a nice ambiance at home that, you know, there was this sort of calming effect of hearing this music played during a really sad time in our family's life. As I began to compose music, they saw that I needed to have a, a more disciplined approach perhaps. And through a series of friends found this really amazing pianist for me to study with. She was, a grad, she was an undergrad at um, SUNY Stony Brook and was studying with terrific teachers there. And she pulled out the classical works and uh, marked up the scores and, and put me on a schedule for learning certain pages, um, gave me good practice techniques. And it was really, she's a, uh, an elder care attorney now, Larice Phillips, but she was really the, the first teacher who gave me those important habits of discipline and a wider understanding of why I needed to learn the, the structure of work and the technique, as opposed to just relying upon my talent and, you know, my, uh, my eagerness. So, and she became a, you know, a friend years later, we weren't that far apart in age. So as we got older, we became friends, but I, I was really grateful to have had that. She came into my life just at, at the right moment, probably when I was 12 or 13. Yeah, that's amazing. And a couple of things that you had mentioned that I want to highlight is you were talking about, you know, being able to play piano and things for your parents and how that helped them cope with their grief. And I think it's so fascinating that music is able to do that for people. And obviously we understand that as musicians, but even the average person can understand how music can make people feel a certain way and comfort them and things like that. And that's why things like music therapy, music education are so important, but it's so crazy how we all have this connection to certain yeah. It's fascinating to me just how, how humans work in that way. Well, you know, and in, in fact, you know, I found I was very young in terms of, um, I was the, always the youngest kid in my class because I, I skipped kindergarten. So I was, I was five years old in first grade and whatnot. And, and being able to retreat to music, to play my heart out, literally to play my heart out. If I was feeling sad or excited, I could channel that into music. And so what I played in on, on any given day would reflect my own emotions. And it became a tremendous outlet for me to, you know, to sing at the top of my lungs, to, you know, bang around on the piano if I was angry, to, um, to write music that reflected that. So it definitely became, and it was something that was all mine. It wasn't something that, you know, I had to go out and buy to do or required a group of other people. It was something that I could claim for myself and it became a point of um, a, a great, I had a great deal of agency uh, because I could create the environment and the experience that made me feel really whole and nurtured in a way. 
Yeah, and I completely agree with that. And you had also mentioned you were talking about your your teacher and the the uh, mentality and the skills that she had instilled you with and how great that was for you as a child. And I think that's another thing that's so great about music education from such a young age and the profound effects that it has as you age is not just the musical experiences, but all of the other the other aspects of life that it instills in you, you know, like having good time management and being a, a quality worker and, you know, all those things that are so important, but also just having that idea of empathy and things like that. I think it's a great way to teach children to understand feelings and be able to express those and be able to take, you know, whatever they're going through in life and be able to have an outlet to express that. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think the process of being creative and unstructured to being structured for me required a lot of kind of jury rigging. So we we had a timer, like one of those, you know, kitchen timers that my mother would put on the piano for me to practice for a half an hour. And of course, while she was using the Cuisinart in the kitchen, I would turn the timer back a little bit to dodge the time. So she started keeping the timer with her. (laughs) So I have this dramatic memory of me sitting at the piano doing exercises uh, while she's Cuisinarting something in the background and the timer ticking. So that's also, along with the Rite of Spring, seared into my memory, was how I could dodge the timer. So that that was part of it too. But I, I appreciate in retrospect that that I had that regular practice because it does it does make all the difference in the world. I just didn't have the maturity to uh, to appreciate it or the the habit of it from the beginning. I love that you have the timer and everything instilled in your brain. That's so funny. Oh yeah, no, it's very it's very vivid. And you know, honestly, being able to play by ear, um, I don't yeah. have perfect pitch, but I've been able to play by ear since I was really tiny. And I would my mother would play the piano a little bit, kind of reading from music, and I would I would play it with her mistakes. That's how she knew. I could uh, play by ear. So in a way that becomes a real, it masks because you're, you're, you know, and especially when you're cute, you're five years old, you can pretty much play anything. Nobody wants to say, no, you must do it this way. So I got away with a lot when I was little and then had to really adjust to a more disciplined approach. Yeah. So let's fast forward a little bit. You obviously went to school for music. So what made you want to pursue music as a career professionally? Well, you know, I, in high school, I had uh, some terrific teachers who thought that I would really benefit from a more intensive program on Saturdays at Manhattan School of Music. And, you know, frankly, being one of, let's say, you know, five or seven kids in my high school who were really serious about music to being part of a Saturday program where everybody was um, focused on music was one of the most thrilling things. I found all these people who were like me and I loved being in that immersive experience and and it made me want to do that even more continuously. So I graduated early from high school when I was 16 and decided I was going to pursue music seriously. And I I made the decision so late that I, I had limited options in terms of where I could apply to school, but I was really fascinated with the the program at SUNY Binghamton, um, or now Binghamton University, and I applied there. And it was a really interesting thing to become part of a, you know, a college environment at that age, because I could study piano privately. It was both performance, history, and composition. It was the three different disciplines that were all wrapped up in that program. So it was very well balanced. And I was plunged into you know, serious theory. Walter Ponce was my piano teacher, as was Harris Goldsmith. And at the time that I 
started at SUNY Binghamton, I was permitted to take an upper class course in composition. It was more of a seminar style. And at the time, Ezra Latterman was uh, at the NEA in Washington. So his replacement faculty member was Samuel Adler, who was coming down from Eastman to teach uh, once a week. And I had a chance to study with him. I was in this class, you know, with upperclassmen and, and graduate students. And I was writing music that sounded very, very different from the other students. And Sam would sort of work with each student according, he would, he would sort of enter their world and uh, advise them based upon where they were and the work that they were writing as opposed to creating some general template because we were all different, all different styles. And I remember in one of the classes, uh, after hearing what my peers were writing, I said something like, oh, I'm really sorry, my music isn't as complex as theirs. I was very apologetic. And the other students kind of put, like, they rolled their eyes. They were all men. I was the only um, woman in the class. And they kind of put their palm to their forehead, like, oh my God, how could she, how could she say this to one of the great masters of composition? And Sam looked at me and he said, you know, you can't write music that you don't believe in. You know, whatever you do, you know, do it well. It doesn't matter the style. And that was something that really, that really stayed with me. And he took me aside privately and he said, you know, people write all sorts of music. And for these purposes, they sometimes write to show off. They write in a style where they're, they're kind of touring around different styles. It's good to experiment, but you know, never diminish what you've done. Like be proud of it, do it well, learn, move on. And you know, at the age of 16 to have that lesson in life really opened my ears and enabled me to, to listen less in a comparative way and more attentively to any given style with the question of, you know, what is an artist trying to do here as opposed to, are they good in comparison to X, Y, or Z? So I, I began to think a little bit more about the interior goal and sound and intent of a work as opposed to compare and contrast. And that, that was a very important lesson. Walter Ponce was a pianist who, who helped me find my voice as a pianist, directing me to music that really brought out my expressive capabilities and challenged me uh, to the music of Albania and Kachaturian, which were interesting contrasts. Um, <laughs> and you know, it was at that point, actually, that I, as a, as a sophomore in college, I was invited to, to do a, an internship in an organization that I had volunteered for. It was uh, an organization on Long Island that had an annual summer Beethoven festival, and they needed a, uh, an intern to be the coordinator. And so I, I found myself in my sophomore year doing the most professional, or the, the summer before sophomore year, doing my most professional job uh, that I'd done to date. I'd, I'd done some other arts work. Actually, I had written for a Gannett newspaper. The, it was the Sun Bulletin, I think, mm -hmm. in, um, in Binghamton, the Gannett newspaper there. I, I walked into the newsroom one day and I said, do you need a writer for music? And they said, well, sure. We're, our arts writer prefers theater, so we could use someone to write you know, some music reviews. So I actually wrote music reviews of the local concerts when I, when I was a freshman. That's, cool. that's awesome. I sort of, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know. So I also didn't realize that some, if I didn't edit my own copy, someone else would. And that was a, a harsh, 
lesson to learn. But anyway, I, I, I had this opportunity in my in the summer to run a Beethoven festival and to work with professional pianists and chamber players and orchestral musicians from around the New York area and to write, you know, program notes and bios and work on contracts and correspondence and hospitality. And the festival was held in a beautiful arboretum. So I was dealing with logistics of pianists in, you know, rose gardens and herb gardens and what would happen if the orchestra went on strike and what would we do then? So I was really thrown into the deep end of, of arts management and logistics. And I loved every single blessed moment of it. Yeah. I loved thinking about the artist's experience, the patron experience. I had my first working office experience, which was vivid because people did not get along very well in the office. So <laughs> my illusion that adults behave like adults was really, <laughs> that was a, I came to face to face with bracing reality there. But I, I loved being on the make it happen side more than the creative side. And I have to say that that internship and the writing for the paper in uh, Binghamton really propelled me more toward on the path of arts management. So from there, when I returned to Binghamton, Sam Adler had said to me, you know, I, I think that for uh, more rigorous and greater continuity with composition, you should really think of a more rigorous program. And so he encouraged me to look at more academically focused composition programs. And I applied to the University of Pennsylvania because I had always loved and worshipped George Crumb. From the time I was at Manhattan School of Music Prep, I loved George Crumb's music. I had a composition teacher who wanted to expand my ears and my mind. And so he challenged me to listen to a lot of different types of music and to look at different uh, systems of notation. His name is Ed Billis and he's a fantastic composer, does a lot of commercial music now and really creative sort of cross-media work. And he at the time was working on his doctorate with Elliot Carter and was at Juilliard and just really interesting, engaged, curious person. And he took me on that journey with him. And so when I had a chance to apply to Penn, I knew that as an undergraduate, I could never study privately with George Crumb, but I thought, you know, if there are people who are there to study with him, it's going to be an interesting group of people. And so I was accepted as a transfer student, and George actually let me sit in as an auditor for his graduate seminar. And in that seminar, he didn't work with individual students on their compositions, but he took us through style studies of Chopin, nocturnes, and preludes, and mazurkas, and etudes, so that we could look at structure and how a composer builds from a small cell of an idea to a larger cell of an idea. And so at Penn, um, Chinnery Ung was teaching there at the time, Jay Reese. These were people that I had a chance to, to study with in classes. In fact, Chinnery was, uh, was there for a brief time, but I learned all about overtone series and the use of drones in different types of compositions. And each teacher, whether it was Eugene Narmore taking us through uh, Shankarian analysis and different theories of analysis through to faculty who focused on Renaissance and medieval music. I really loved those very specific, very intensive immersions. It, it was not an easy department at the time to be part of, and there were very few women who were music majors and very few music majors, period. And my rather I would say nonlinear approach to my education came into kind of direct conflict 
with how one or two of the faculty members perceived a proper education in music should unfold. And so when I came there, candidly, I, I encountered a great deal of resistance to my being a music major. And I had to work very hard to fight and validate why I should be a music major and then find the advocates within the department to support my, my path. I ended up being one of the sort of alumni ambassadors for the music department, ironically, and I maintained such a, a strong relationship with a number of the faculty, but, but it felt like a bit of a hazing. And it was not a friendly place to be when I started there. Again, I had to find my ambassadors, but I also learned in that particular place that I had to build my strength as a self-advocate. I had to advocate for myself and build a coalition of supporters. I couldn't rely upon you know, a, a framework exclusively to support me. But while I was there, I also wrote for the school paper. I started a concert series that combined faculty and students. And it was a, like a chamber music series. We programmed it, we promoted it. I wrote public service announcements, press releases, programmed it based upon applications. And so we, we had a, a great series. People um, attended from all over the city. And then at that time, I also had an internship for a very nascent program within the university that has now become the very robust um, Annenberg Performing Arts Program at, um, at Penn. At the time, it was sort of like a, a concert producing office and we had a couple concerts a year. And so I would work with the artists you know, come and the managers and the logistics and dates. So I assisted someone who was the uh, executive director. And so at Penn, I really, that's really where I, I had to sort of step up and really self-advocate and understand what I wanted to get from my education and insist that I, I should have the opportunity to do so. To do so. At, at Binghamton, I felt very, much better supported and scaffolded from the start and at Penn I had to fight for it more. Both were tremendous learning experiences and probably the exact right ones that I had given my age and my experience. And uh, I came out of college knowing that being a trained musician would be a tremendous asset to my knowledge about music and being able to speak credibly about music would be an important point of connection with artists and with managers, but that rather than create music as a pianist or composer, I really wanted to create programs and be part of institutions that worked closely with artists. And so essentially from the age of 17, I knew exactly what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. It was that, it was that clear and non-negotiable to me. And I've never looked back. That's so great that it was that experience that pretty much open that door for you. And I think that's one of the awesome parts about pursuing music collegiately in those things is that those experiences are the things that, you know, either firm what you're doing or they open a new door and you're like, wow, okay, this is what I want to do. And you go and pursue that. And you had mentioned some of your experiences because there were a few women in your program and there were a few music majors and how you felt like you had to really advocate for yourself. And yeah. that's one of the things that I talk about 
on this show is there are all these negative experiences that happen to women in music or any minoritized population, especially at the collegiate level. And especially when in a major like composition where women are so significantly outnumbered. I think that there's all these negative experiences, but there's also this point of transformation where because of what you had to experience, you grow stronger. And like you said, you learn to advocate for yourself um, yes. and learn to stand on your own. And so I guess while all of that stuff is terrible, there's also this point of light that comes out of it where you come out of that and you're like, you know what? Yes, I need to learn to stick up for myself and speak my own voice and tell my own truth and those sorts of things. And I think that's just so profound for young women who are in music that are going to pursue it professionally to have a grasp of that knowledge and have a sense of community and be able to advocate for themselves. That's so important. Yeah, no, it, it is important. And frankly, when I was younger, I had a teacher who was, who uh, crossed boundaries, nothing that wasn't manageable by me or my parents. He was my composition teacher at Manhattan School of Music. And I was moved from his studio when, and I started then from there with Ed Billis because I asked to be taken out of this other teacher's studio. Mm -hmm. And when I was in that awkward position, really not knowing what to do, and I was told, well, you know, you just have to kind of, you know, you got to move to New York, you've got to go to the village, you know, a lot of women have to sleep with people in order to get their music played, you know, it's just how it's done. And I was, you know, 15 years old at the time, and I'm hearing this and thinking, what? what? And he's sort of, you know, picking little, you know, lint off my sweater on my arm. And I'm like, oh, this is weird. So the school moved me into Ed's studio, which was, uh, you know, my real savior and, um, and haven. But I, it was at that point that I thought, you know, if, if I only have one way that I can be involved in music, then I'm going to have to recognize i mean i really accepted that this is this is potentially what i'm going to hear over and over again and so i stayed attuned to other things that i wanted to do so that i wouldn't feel beholden to that one person who might be the gatekeeper and what i hear so often from friends who have these experiences is that they feel as though this one person who is behaving so completely inappropriately and or abusively they have that the person has basically designated them themselves the gatekeeper to the future that that you know you, you don't get further if you don't acquiesce you don't have a chance and that theme comes back over and over again so i was i was determined to be first of all i was interested more interested in in doing the management and artistic um, and programmatic work at a much broader level but also I never wanted to be in a position where I couldn't walk away from that early um, experience. And I remember having this, you know, thought when I was 15 years old and, you know, again, there wasn't a lasting impact because my parents were swift to, um, to complain and to move me out and all of that. And I didn't have further experiences like that during my collegiate experience, but, but it stayed with me. Like, you know, people, when you're the first one in a group, in a community, when you have experiences that are extremely formative, how do you use that information and that experience when you're in a position of leadership to change the trajectory? And I've thought about that a lot, you know, as a 
one of the first people at Boozy and Hawks to have a child and return to work when I had my daughter in, um, in the year 2000. The company had been around for 70 years, but there hadn't been another woman in a leadership role who had had their child and come back to work in that position. So there wasn't a maternity leave policy for the company. And in New York at the time, people's lives, personal lives and professional lives were very compartmentalized. So when I had my daughter and I then became president of the company uh, about a year and a half later, you know, how could I create a more relaxed environment, some, an environment that was more porous, where people's personal and professional lives were, where they could show up as their full selves. And I found many junctures like this in my professional life where there was an opportunity to maybe refresh the way people existed in their work and showed up personally and could feel more, more integrated in their, in their lives. And that was, certainly, that was certainly a theme throughout. And sometimes when you're the first one, you see the challenges that you face and you're determined to, um, to soften those, those edges as you go along. Yeah, and I was, my next question for you, um, what sort of obstacles have you had to face personally and professionally as a woman in your career, in your field, and all the experiences you've had? What were some of those obstacles that you've had to face based upon the fact that you are a woman? Well, you know, candidly, when I, in my, the, the winter break of my senior year, I made appointments, informational interviews with, requested indiv uh, informational interviews with about 15 or so different arts leaders in New York. I was living on Long Island and so I'd get dressed up and I had my resume and I had a little business card. I had been doing some consulting during the summers too for arts organizations. I was very, I was very entrepreneurial and had a strong sense of self. So, you know, why not, you know, for $10 an hour, do some consulting during, <laughs> during college summer breaks. So I, I had a resume filled with internships and some freelance consulting and had uh, found people extremely well, willing to talk to me about their own pathways and to give me feedback because when they looked at my resumes, you know, what are you interested in? Here's what I would recommend. Maybe speak to this one, speak to that one. And actually a number of those people are still really close friends today. You know, people I stayed in touch with because we've both been, you know, we've all been in the field for a long time. What was really interesting is when I met with people, I would say probably 12 out of the 15 people were very constructive. They, they saw where I had strength. They heard the passion of my areas of interest. They recommended I speak with people who could sort of direct me towards jobs that might be coming online. They saw that I, I was really inclined towards leadership, that I was a creative person. I liked doing many different things. There were two people who were both men um, who said to me, you know, you're going to have to start at the bottom and be a receptionist for at least five years because, you know, it's really hard for women and, you know, you'll probably want to go off and have a child. And I'm not sure if career-wise it's, you know, for someone who wants to have it. And I had never said anything about having a child, but they sort of jumped to that conclusion. And in the back of my mind, I, sit there, I sat there and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. You're making a lot of assumptions, but it's good to know. So whereas in, in, with the majority of people, they were seeing the potential and encouraging me, there were a couple of men who were like, yeah, you know, it's, you're probably going to take time away and, and you can't really, you know, you're going to have a lot of family demands. And, if, you know, granted, again, this was the mid-1980s, so this wasn't unique to the arts. 
but it, it, you know, but again, when I, when I see an obstacle, my determination is to figure out a way around it and to not be deterred by sort of the, the skepticism or negativity. It, it's just built into my personality to, to want to challenge the naysayers and to, um, and to plow forward. That's, I'm just, whether it's the, the, you know, being the youngest kid in the class from the time I was, you know, in school to encountering what I encountered at Penn, whatever it was that, that self-advocacy was there. So I did find myself often the youngest person or the only woman when being the youngest person in my first job when I worked at Merkin Concert Hall, I definitely found that, you know, I needed to be much more on my game. You know, I dressed in a suit and a silk shirt and pantyhose and high heels every single day, even though I commuted from Long Island. I wanted to be taken seriously and to present as someone who was professionally very focused and very um, mature and to be take, quote, to be taken seriously. And, and part of that, I think it came from, you know, my parents having been New Yorkers growing up during the depression that certain values, like you make sure your shoes are polished and you represent this family well and all of that. Whenever we went into New York, I was always dressed up as a kid, even though, you know, every weekend I had, you know, the wool coat and the wool hat and gloves and all of that. So that, that sort of carried forward to, um, to my work life. And I, I would say, while I found myself then surrounded by a lot of women, I was always kind of the youngest person, you know, oh, you're so young to have this type of job. Oh, I didn't expect that you would be this young. When we talked on the phone, I thought you were older. So, you know, that, that's something that, that tracked with me for about 10 years, <laughs> that I, I frequently worked with people who were older than I was. And that's no longer the case, thankfully, and hasn't been for some time. But it was like a, you know, kind of a repeated, repeated thing. Well, what, you know, what do you think someone who's been in this role should be doing. I really counted my years prior to full-time work as time in the field. So I imagined myself probably five years older than I actually really was. Yeah. Because I came in with existing relationships. I came in, you know, having read Musical America from front page to last page. That was my Bible. I'd go to the high school library every day and I would read the Musical America and I would look at all of the articles and I'd look at the ads and I'd look at the artist listings and the manager listings and you know who was advertising and then I would read the rock music encyclopedia and I'd read the classical music encyclopedia so that that's how I spent my lunch hours I knew all the different agencies and many of the managers names by the time I set foot at Merkin Hall I knew who the field was and I contacted most of many of those people when I worked for the Beethoven festival so I came in with a pretty good Rolodex and, and with a sense of moorings. And also, frankly, having been to a lot of the performing arts venues, yeah. including the churches with concert series and all of that. So I was, I was ready. I was, <laughs> I was, I was ready to, to jump right in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel the same way. I think it's not only a, a gender thing, but sometimes it's also an ageist thing. Yeah. I felt like in my first job, when I walked in, I had to always act like I was older than I actually was and things like that, because I was so young, starting teaching at 21 years old. <laughs> yes. Things like that, it's hard. And being a young woman and having to do those things and gain people's respect and you know, carry yourself with such maturity all the time and not quite reveal your personality right away and things like that. Yes. It's 
weird cryptic things that you don't necessarily think about in the moment until you reflect upon it and you're like wow you know i really did have to do that yeah yeah well and also you know before i i was working full-time in addition to after in my the summer before junior year the summer before senior year i worked for a temp agency i worked for i think olson temporary agency olson temporary services i was an olson girl because i was a pianist i could type really fast and i knew how to use a dictaphone i'd taken like a secretarial class in high school so that i'd always have quote a backup plan so with my office skills i was able to be placed at you know investment bank or wherever and i did a couple of temp jobs at banks where because I was doing the temp jobs on Long Island, I think they assumed that I had dropped out of high school or whatever, but I would literally have an executive take me and put their arm around me and say, let me show you where the copier is and show you how to use the copier. And I'd say, and I knew that they were making assumptions uh, between my age and whatever. And I would say, oh, well, every college student knows how to use a Xerox machine. Oh, yeah. do you go to college? Yes, where do you go? Oh, I go to the University of Pennsylvania. So, oh my goodness. So there was this constant refrain. And when I worked at Grumman Aerospace, I worked in the executive offices there for two summers as a temp along in, in, the, in the leasing department where they would um, do leases for trucks and Pearson yachts. It was a very strange combination of things, but I was doing, I was assisting with credit checks, background checks for people who would apply for loans. And that's where I really saw the hierarchy of executive leadership, mid-level mid management and support staff. And I was a member of the support staff. And I saw the assumptions and the gender politics and you know, the, what changed when people knew you went to college versus what they assumed when you didn't go to college, when they assumed that you didn't go to college. It was fascinating. It was yeah. such a powerful experience to have at such a young age to understand. And also the racial disparities. I saw there were people, it was predominantly white, but there were a few black or Latino people on the staff. And I really saw that, you know, culture, mid eighties culture, the stratification at play there. It was, it was really fascinating. Mm. It's so nuts to me that, I mean, you're talking about that like now when you were younger, but that still stuff still happens today. You know, yes. So, yeah. But let's fast forward a little bit to your current job because you are the president and CEO of Washington Performing Arts. So, can you tell us a little bit more about the organization and what your job entails? Sure. So, Washington Performing Arts was founded in the 1960s, 1965, by Patrick Hayes, who was a, a legendary impresario and decided to create um, a nonprofit presenter, you know, at a very interesting time in Washington, D.C. He had presented artists for many, many years and built extraordinary relationships with the community, with arts managers. And when he started his nonprofit board, he invited the eminent um, singer Todd Duncan, who had originated the role of Porgy in Porgy and Bess, to be the first chairman of the board. So if you can imagine in a very segregated Washington, D.C., inviting an African-American singer to help him create and craft this very storied organization. It really reflected some very deep principles of community engagement and inclusivity at a very important time in our city and in our country. Patrick Hayes' ethos was encapsulated in four words, everybody in, nobody out. And the organization had such 
a profound history in, in making the arts accessible and available to a wide community, both through the education programs, which were started at the very beginning of the organization, to the governance structure. Frankly, the Women's Committee was created within a few years of Washington Performing Arts started, starting. Um, Doug Wheeler um, helped bring that about in the late uh, 60s. And the Women's Committee, which just celebrated its 50th anniversary, was one of the first diverse uh, volunteer groups of any in the country with African-American, white women, many different social, economic, faith practices, all working uh, collectively to ensure that children had great arts education in the schools and that our programs were well supported. So the Women's Committee was uh, a, a perfect example of Patrick Hayes and Todd Duncan's beliefs, as was the board, which has had very varied and diverse leadership um, its entire history. So, you know, as many organizations are, are uh, just now or just recently beginning to recognize that diversity is actually a strength and a core value and a reflection of community. This is something that was baked into the DNA of Washington Performing Arts from years ago. And frankly, it was one of the reasons why I was so eager to join Washington Performing Arts. It wasn't just to sort of take over a larger presenter or only to be in Washington, DC, which it, in and of its own would be reason enough, but it was to work with an organization that has such fundamental values anchored in, in equity and inclusivity and in excellence that I felt that those bones and structures existed as non-negotiable and that whatever we did to honor that history and to continue to enliven it would be a great honor to, um, to do. So that's, that's, that was what drew me here. As the president and CEO, my responsibility is really to ensure the, the artistic and operational integrity of Washington Performing Arts and to set the vision for the organization so that our visibility, our brand, our programs fulfill the mission and the legacy. And at the same time, you know, because we're in our nation's capital, to my goal has been very based around building partnerships with artists, with organizations in DC. It's one of our great strengths because we don't have a building to manage. We have a lot of flexibility. And so we actually use venues all over the city. We have, gosh, in our last year before the pandemic, we had about 50 different partnerships, sometimes one-off partnerships with an ensemble or with a, uh, a fellow presenting organization in other cases much more expansive as we have with the DC public schools or with the Library of Congress where we've had a series of collaborations and programs. So I love the fact that we can be nimble, that we can be responsive. We have two gospel choirs, which is we're the only organization in the country with two gospel choirs. And we have a number of artists and residents from the eminent Murray Horwitz, uh, who's a Tony Award winning writer, to the fabulous string queens who are all teachers and um, extraordinary string players in the DC public schools. And we have artists in residence through our gospel choir. We have um, Theodore Thorpe III, Anthony Tony Walker, and Michelle Fallon, who are the music and artistic directors of our gospel choirs. So artists are at the center of what we do. The community, as we define it, our patrons, our students, people who come to our freed and paid performances, our partners, we define community very broadly. And 
we have um, a Mars Arts DC initiative, which focuses a bright light on the artists who make their work and life here. And that was something that we started when I came on board to really amplify the talent that exists in Washington, DC. So it's, as an organization, there, are, there is a great deal more breadth than you might imagine for the scale. But again, because we don't have to manage a facility, all of our funding and staff time goes into the programs and the artists that help make that possible. So I love it. It's, it, it aligns with everything that I value and so many different threads in my personal and professional life. So it's an exciting, exciting place to be. Yeah, and it's crazy to think about all of the things that this organization does and all of the different areas of music that it touches upon with promoting, you know, these educational programs and also new music and all these other wonderful things. So can you think of a couple of projects that you have participated in or been in charge of that were some of your favorites that you've done? Oh, absolutely. Well, the first one was a really transformative project for the organization. And it, I really had a chance to see like how how much we could synthesize things together. It was our Marian Anderson concert in April of 2014. Uh, we put it together very quickly. We had to raise a lot of money to do this, but it was uh, in honor of the 75th anniversary of her historic performance at the Lincoln Memorial. And the, the anniversary was coming up. It Murray had come to me early in my tenure. It, it started in April of 2013. He said, you know, this is a big anniversary we should do something. We should, we recreate the concert. What, you know, let's, let's think about it. And it got me thinking about the different ways that an organization can tell a story, but also reveal something of itself and what it values in the course of telling that story. So the idea of a recreation of that concert gave way to something that was even bolder. How could we tell the story of Washington performing arts, our history, Washington performing arts history, Patrick Hayes history, presenting Marian Anderson. The, the story of Washington, D.C. as a community of, of voices and people who in many ways trace their very bold foundations to, to Marian Anderson as a sort of accidental civil rights leader and as a musician. So we commissioned a work from Isai Barnwell. We put together a choir comprising uh, about 20 members of 12 or 15 choirs from across the city. We worked in partnership with BET, Black Entertainment Television. We had board members step up instantly to help raise money for this uh, as a mission to make this concert happen. And we decided to hold it at um, DAR Constitution Hall where Marian Anderson's application to perform had been rejected. And Constitution Hall was delighted, thrilled to <laughs> have a new fresh look at history and to sort of reestablish uh, itself in this conversation and, and hosted us uh, gratis. We pulled together the Winans brothers, Dion Warwick, Wolf Blitzer, MC Hammer, Wayne Frederick, uh, Jesse Norman, who was the host, uh, Solomon Howard, who is an alum of our gospel choir, Anise Murillo, who is a singer studying at Peabody with Denise Graves now, but she was a young 16-year-old student. We had an incredible, oh, Malcolm Jamal Warner. It was a star-studded evening of people talking about Marian Anderson. We had film, we had interviews with John Lewis, with a whole set of members of Congress. So for me, that was one of the most transformative and pivotal moments where we could put together the vocal, the commissioning, the choral, the 
legacy. We had presented Jesse Norman with our first Ambassador of the Arts Award. So here she was a, a year and a half later with this, with this project. It, it told the story of Washington performing arts from the get-go. And we had probably 20 different partnerships between Howard University and BET and other cultural centers. It was incredibly thrilling and it became a was turned into a TV show and uh, through BET and, and so on. Very grateful for the partnership, but people had to really trust each other in a whole new way working in this um, environment. And the board needed to trust me that I could deliver on this. And they discovered as well, new ways of participating in the creative process of developing this as a board and also in bringing this funding to the fore. I mean, I was, I'm so grateful that this board was so excited about this idea and put their full effort into making it happen and to making it successful. From there, you know, partnerships really became a fundamental component of what we did and trying to bring as many of our different programs, education, free ticketed partnerships to play so that every program had the chance for many different touch points for kids to be able to attend performances, for artists to visit schools more regularly. And this notion of community service and performance became even more deeply linked when we embarked on a project with Step Africa here in Washington, as they were doing a new production of the of Jacob Lawrence's uh, paintings, which had been on exhibit at the Phillips Collection and were being reunited in a collaboration between the Phillips Collection and the Museum of Modern Art. The uh, Step Africa was reviving its uh, dance piece. And the, the chance to partner with them and to provide support and frankly to network around the country with other presenters who could host Step Africa and their residency and teaching became a really profound collaboration that extended our long-term relationship with Step Africa at a pivotal moment in their creative work. And that was probably a, a six to 12 month process of bringing their new work to light alongside the Phillips Collection, remounting of the, the Lawrence paintings, and then working with partners around the country to host other residencies. The Shift Festival of American Orchestras, which we initiated with the Kennedy Center to focus on the community-based work of orchestras around the country and to bring them and some of their programs to Washington, D.C. was another way of straddling that national and local performance slash education component of an institution's work, which has really made communities so vital and vibrant when resident ensembles engage with communities. So that, that's really been a feature of my work. I think the, the work that Washington Performing Arts is so well positioned to do because we do have that balance across programs and to bring those different programmatic threads together in support of art and in support of our community of patrons and lifelong learners is perhaps the most exciting thing to me is to forge those intersections and spotlight that through a diversity of art forms. It's, it's a really uh, great opportunity and I think it deepens the, the reasoning for why the arts are important and where the arts make um, impact. Yeah, and that's, it's so great because I feel like a lot of these projects involve a very high amount of collaboration between yes. artists and administrators and all sorts of different people um, coming together. And so in, in relation to that and those thoughts that we've been talking about, 
where do you see the future of performing arts organizations like Washington Performing Arts? Where do you see the future of organizations like that, given all the unprecedented time that we are in right now? Well, you know, I, I think that deepening our relationship with patrons and deepening our, deepening our partnership with artists is going to be key. That this notion of churning events, which we haven't we haven't done that much of, honestly, we've, we've focused on building relationships and building a narrative of relationships with artists, you know, bringing them as, let's say, young pianists and supporting them throughout the course of their career. That's been historically our commitment. But there is a lot of presenting of shows that goes on in the world. And however, to make live performance and engagement really meaningful, there has to be a, a level of resonance and continuity and dialogue with artists. And when everything is coming at us, we don't have as much opportunity to process and absorb and to build the, the kind of interwoven fabric of the relationship with an art form. I think that as harrowing as this time has been, that the, the conversion to digital and online forms has actually allowed us in some ways to build more content and more touch points so that by the time a performance happens, whether it's online or in person, that there's a, a, a greater opportunity for engagement and understanding from the artist's perspective of what they would like the audience to know. You know, it, it occurred to me a couple of years ago, we presented an artist at the Kennedy Center who spoke a little bit before they uh, proceeded with a, a part of the program. And a number of people remarked to me that they had never actually heard the artist speak with their voice. They'd only heard them as a performer and that their voice was really different from what they expected. You know, yeah. take that at whatever, whatever way you wish. And I thought, yeah, you know, so often there's this, it, it's such a, a performative, there's such a, a formalized approach to performing that in the past couple of years has begun to dissipate in a very healthy way where artists are engaging much more directly with their fans, that they're less mediated by sort of handlers, um, that especially younger artists are um, propelling forward with their own social media presence and taking real control of their careers and, and are being more forthcoming in ways that than artists would have been, you know, just 10 or 20 years ago. And so their arts presenters have an opportunity to embrace that instead of trying to squeeze just you know 10% of what artists are doing into an old model. The, the challenge is that the economic model requires a different level of collaboration, a different level of philanthropic support. If organizations are moving more towards a deeper level of engagement and less churning shows and a more transactional relationship, and for people to feel philanthropic, they have to feel dedicated. They have to feel dedicated to the organization and to be invested. And it's going to take time. People don't pivot on a dime. But I do think that th there's an opportunity for that deeper level of engagement using digital to get there and using it so that as we come together for live performance again, that people come with an abundance of goodwill and knowledge and attention that might have been, you know, honestly, uh, uh, starved a little bit beforehand. So that, that's how we're really seeing this time now. You know, how do we build that closer relationship and get back to our mission? What is our mission? What is our calling? What do we do well? 
you know, if we do it uniquely, fantastic. If we do it authentically, you know, all the better. But being in the nation's capital is one of the storied presenters with this great history and an inclusive mindset. Um, we have a lot to work with and I'm really proud of our team for thinking about what matters most and the artists who've decided to take some of these leaps with us into our into our new virtual presenting world. Yeah, this period of time with COVID and everything has been just a very transformative time for everyone and what have you, because we've all been kind of reflecting on what our place is and what our career will end up being and looking like and, and how we approach things day to day and professionally. So my last question for you is if you're thinking back to your younger self and starting your career and everything, what advice would you give your younger self? Well, the, the advice I would give my younger self is that as much as you love an organization, it's really important who you work with and alongside that finding really good mentors and people with whom you want to work, people you trust, people you respect, who the community respects is more important because if you love the people you work with, there are a lot of jobs you can do. If you love an organization, but you feel tormented by the people around you, you will not be happy. So I wish somebody had explained that to me early on. I might've made some decisions a little bit more quickly than I had. The other thing I think I'd explain, uh, I'd advise my younger self, and this is advice that I give to, to people who come to me who are kind of deciding what to do next, is make sure, is, is to not deny the fact that you have expertise as an artist. If you have studied music, dance, theater, have worked as an artist, that this is a superpower. Uh, the fact that you are able to work in fluid situations and to create something out of knowledge, out of creativity, to put your imagination and ability to multitask is actually a very, very great strength and an example of nimbleness. So not to downplay that. And at the same time, to be unafraid of becoming acquainted with finance. A lot of people will say, oh, I'm really good at, you know, programming. I'm good at you know, these things, but, you know, I, I don't do budgets. I don't do finance. Like, take a class, find a good mentor, understand why it's important to be able to produce a budget, stick to a budget, read a budget, talk about a budget. You don't have to have, uh, you don't have to be a certified public accountant, but at every level of responsibility, whether at a project level or a managerial level, you will have to understand and will want to understand how the dollars flow and also at, at any arts organization people can dress up missions in all sorts of ways but at the end of the day if you look at a budget it will tell you what the organization values and you want to be able to look at an organization and know whether they value staff whether they value program whether they value you know whether they say what they value is reflected in their programs it helps you understand what you're walking into as a leader what you're walking into as a staff member and any organization that is reluctant to share the financial picture with a prospective applicant or with a board member is one that you want to be wary of. So that kind of triple piece of advice, I guess, is what I wish somebody had told me early on. Yeah, I think all of that is fantastic and great insight. Jenny, I want to thank you so much for talking with us today and sharing some of your stories and your career and your experiences. It was great chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Good luck.